This is Crowcasts, the podcast from Crow in the UK, a leading audit, tax, advisory and risk firm with global reach and local expertise. In our podcasts, you will hear from our specialists offering insight and pragmatic advice to businesses of all sizes, professional practices, non-profit organisations, pension funds and private clients. Hello, my name is Caroline Harwood. I'm the head of the Employment Tax and Share Schemes Practice here at Crow UK. And today I'm going to talk about coronavirus, the furlough scheme and the long trek back to work. On the 28th of August 2020, we saw the government launch a campaign to get workers back into the office. Business leaders have been warning us about long lasting damages to 60 centres as employees continue to work from home. We've all heard stories of the centre of Leeds, London, Manchester, Birmingham being ghost towns at the moment. And so interestingly, and perhaps not surprisingly, the headlines have prompted some quite polarised opinions. The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, has been much more concerned about how employees perform rather than where they work. And he's praised those working from home for delivering at an unbelievable rate. And indeed they have. But at the same time, the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, has said that some things are impossible to do remotely. And this is, of course, true as the impact on city centre shops, which are suffering from the lack of passing trade, is clear to see. But the situation isn't straightforward. Many employees have learnt to value the ability to work flexibly. They like spending more time with their family. They like walking the dog in the middle of the day. They like being able to take part in local community events or even using the time that would have been spent commuting, sitting on a train or on the tube to continue to work, but without actually having an impact on the length of their day. So they spend the same amount of time doing home stuff that they would have done otherwise, but they're actually managing to do more work. But equally, others miss the social interactions that the office presents. They're not having the coffee machine chats. They're not talking across desks, um, going out together for a coffee. And that brought the opportunities not only to socialise, but also to cross-sell. If you go out with somebody from another department to grab a coffee, you might talk about what you're doing. That might spark an opportunity to provide more value to your clients. You don't learn from colleagues overhearing their telephone conversations, their discussions on technical points. And also being together maintains team spirit. And I think what a lot of people are looking for is an opportunity to spend some time in the office and some time at home. But if we're looking at this in the context of the coronavirus pandemic and from an employment law perspective, forcing employees back to work could prompt discrimination claims. So you need to consider the age point with older employees who may be more vulnerable or predominantly female workers caring for others who are more vulnerable to the virus They could bring indirect sex discrimination claims if they're compelled to return to the office. And on that point, Labour's shadow business minister, Lucy Powell, has said no one should be forced to choose between their health and their job. And the government should categorically rule out any campaign suggesting people could lose their employment um, if they're forced to go back into the office. And that's something that the prime minister has picked up on and has been very keen to stress is the case. But each company needs to look at their own circumstances and take legal advice if they're in any doubt. Businesses need to heed public health and government employment guidance. They need to carry out risk assessments. They need to make sure they understand and meet their employees' concerns. And that, co- that of course, means making reasonable adjustments to facilitate a return to a safe office. So you will see social distancing measures put in place, one-way systems, 
queuing systems for the loo and for the coffee machine. All of these things are really important. But anecdotally, I would say that many objections are more around the risks of getting to work rather than the environment um, when they actually get there. So workers recognise that their employers are making efforts to ensure that the workplace is COVID secure and social distancing measures are put in place. But that in itself means that many employers can't accommodate all of the workforce at the same time. So hot desking systems where people have been very close together may not be possible to operate going forwards. You may have to have the two metre distance um, in place. You may need to look very carefully at how you clean your office space. So if there is a hot desk, you'll need decontaminating every evening. If the same person sits in the same desk, you won't need to do it so often. But the important not to incede capacity constraints. So we may see people in shifts or teams coming back to the office, maybe one week at a time, one week off, certain days at a time, other days off. In practice, though, I think children are going back to school in September. The pressures for many will ease as a result of that. And that will coincide with the next round of changes in the flexible furlough scheme, also known as the coronavirus job retention scheme. And both of these are likely to result in more people being able or being required to return to work. So if we look at um, CGRS or the furlough scheme, it was extended to October 2020 in order to protect jobs. And the amount that employers can, can claim reduces each month from July, with employers required to gradually start making contributions towards their workers' wages. So since the 1st of August 2020, employers have been no longer aimed, able to claim CGRS grants for their employers' national insurance and pension costs. From the 1st of September 2020, we saw a further change with the CGRS wage claim support reducing to 70% of the wages cost or £2,187.50, whichever is lower. And the employer um, is required to top up the wage cost to 80% or 2500 if that's lower. Looking forward to the 1st of October, the CGRS wage claim support will reduce further to 60% topped out at 1875 and the employer again will need to top up the amount they pay their employee to 80% of their normal wage cost or £2,500. The vast majority of employers have compli complied with the government rules on how to operate the scheme, but the way that you calculate your claims is very complex. So it's very possible that innocent errors may have arisen purely in working out what the numbers are. They are very difficult and not all calculators that are available on the market calculate the more complex claims, making everyone very open to error. But reports have suggested that we're not just talking about innocent errors. There's also been abuse and advantage taken of the scheme. And in, um, in mid-August, we saw the publication of a report by the universities of Cambridge, Oxford and Zurich, which suggested that of the 9.4 million employees who were furloughed at the peak of the scheme, some 6 million, so two thirds, have actually worked from home whilst on furlough. What does that mean? Well, they've broken the rules. Claims in respect of those 6 million employees could have been made when they should not have been made, or they may be repayable because they're not, um, the employees cease to be eligible for furlough support. Now, of those, Nearly one in five fur furloughed workers, or just over um, 1.9 million, have reported being explicitly asked to work by their employers. Now, that's in the, um, the report from Cambridge, Oxford and Zurich. HMRC themselves have had 8,000 whistleblowing reports of abuse of the scheme as at 7th of August 2020. 
So where that leaves us is in a position where more than 4 million furloughed employees have worked, but without explicitly having been asked to by their employers. So that might be a result of they're trying to be helpful. They might have forwarded on some emails for somebody who isn't furloughed to deal with, or they might have popped into the office to check everything's okay. You know, they haven't been burgled or a stock delivery has arrived. And I've even heard reports of employees volunteering for their employer or for an associated business, having seen that people on furlough are allowed to volunteer, but without realising that that volunteering under the scheme is only permitted when it's for an unconnected organisation. So the legislation is new, it's complex, it has evolved at its peak on an almost daily basis. So it's very likely that many employers would have made innocent mistakes when calculating and submitting their claims, particularly if they don't know that employees have been working, and particularly at the start of lockdown when the schemes were evolving and many of the calculator software packages could only calculate the most straightforward claims. So when you add in the number of employers who may be unaware that as a result of their employees' actions, they may have inadvertently broken the rules, there is massive scope for errors in respective claims for made for millions of employees. That's very worrying and it's quite an eye-opener. We already know that HMRC has the furlough scheme firmly in its headlights as part of the efforts to plug the hole in the Treasury's coffers. And it's already started steps to detect fraudulent claims and they are actively searching for um, organisations that have defrauded the scheme. We've already seen one criminal conviction. So what can you do to stay compliant? First thing to do is to think about whether you have an error and contacting HMRC directly to notify them of an error is likely to reduce any penalty compared to waiting for HMRC to carry out an inspection and find out themselves. In that latter case, they are much more likely to apply significant penalties, even if the errors are innocent. HMRC have already created a facility to allow businesses to pay back overclaimed amounts for the furlough scheme. And if you use this to fully correct any errors, there's no need to make any further disclosure. You've done what you need to do. If the recipient of a COVID support payment, which includes the furlough claim, is not entitled to it, then new rules have been introduced, um, which put in place a tax charge at a rate of 100% of the payment the support payment which has been received but which shouldn't have been and it's applied at the time when either the person who received the payment ceases to be entitled to it if they were originally entitled to it but that's that's changed or otherwise at the time the support payment was made so that latter case is when they were never entitled to the payment but claimed it anyway chargeability must be notified on the later of 90 days after the date that that tax became chargeable or the 20th of October, which was 90 days after the Finance Act was passed. If the employer has received a COVID support payment and either they shouldn't have done deliberately or inadvertently and they fail to notify that they are chargeable, then the penalties are severe. Failure is automatically treated as deliberate and concealed. So penalties could automatically be up to 100% of the tax on the payment even when the errors are innocent. And in extreme cases, the government will pursue arrests for fraudulent claims. Now, if you find out you've made an error, it's an innocent mistake and you report it to the revenue, it is unlikely that they will throw the book at you. But where there are cases of ghost employees or employees um, explicitly being told to work when a claim has been made, 
then the consequences could be dire. To reduce the risk of penalties being applied, and now that many employees are returning to work, either on a flexible or full-time basis, we really strongly recommend that, error, that um, employers are checking their claims to make sure they haven't overclaimed or made any errors. And those should then be, be corrected within the 90-day period, if possible. Otherwise, voluntary disclosure should be made to HMRC. Where employers are still making claims on a regular basis, you easily offset the error against the future claim. You just adjust next month's claim to make sure that the, the error is, is, is effectively eliminated. If you've got no more claims to make, but you've made an error in previous claims, we recommend checking the claims, making sure they, that the calculations are absolutely right, and then contacting HMRC, notifying of errors and making a proposition as to how they should be corrected. I would recommend watching my colleague um, John Cassidy's excellent webinar on the tax charges arising on coronavirus support payments and the actions that HMRC can take. The webinar goes into a lot more detail than, than I am today in this podcast, but it will, you will find it really helpful. So if we summarise the position, given that the government undoubtedly intend to maximise clawbacks from those who have overclaimed, now is the time to make sure that your claims under the furlough scheme are accurate and that detailed evidence is retained to prove eligibility to claim the grant. HMRC has stated from the outset that they will be carrying out retrospective compliance checks on furlough claims and they will require employers to keep all furlough records for six years. So what are they likely to have a look at? Well, during inspection on CGS procedures, HMRC are likely to expect to see evidence such as the amounts paid and claimed in respect of each furloughed worker. So what have you claimed from the government and what have you paid to the worker? Communications with employees notifying that they were being furloughed. Now, those who should have been compliant with employment law, they should have made reference to your existing employment contracts. And where you are bringing back employees on a full or part-time basis, you need to make sure that those communications have been updated where appropriate. They'll be looking at the calculations for your claims and they'll be looking at procedures in place to bring back furloughed workers. So not only the communication documents, but how are you tracking hours that have been worked so that your claims are accurate. You need to make sure that the process has been thoroughly documented. Check it, keep records of the checks and retain all of those records for at least six years. Now, as HMRC are already taking action with regard to incorrect claims, it's a really good idea to get a second opinion if you have any doubt as to the accuracy of your claim or the calculation software that you've been using. You've got 90 days from the time that you received a payment to make any errors. So make it a priority to make sure that you've got everything correct and that you're fully compliant going forward. If you get it wrong, there's a risk of severe penalties. So let's make sure that we take this time now to get everything right. I hope that this podcast has been helpful. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And do tune in to other podcasts in our series. Thank you. Tune in next time for another episode of Crowcasts. For more information about Crow, our services, industries we advise and insights, visit crow.co.uk. We are an independent member of Crow Global, the eighth largest accounting network in the world. You can connect with us on social media by following Crow UK on LinkedIn or at Crow UK on Twitter.